This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, February 9th, 2015. Episode 7, Concerning Some Divine Dentistry. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and I'm now about three weeks into a lingering cough. This is par for the course. I can usually count on developing some kind of long-lasting respiratory issue every winter. Uh, And if anything, this bout has been milder than uh, in years past. But again, I apologize for any continued raspiness this week. Um, But being sick has had me thinking about how people dealt with painful but not necessarily mortal illness in the days before modern medicine. Uh, Well, of course, one way they dealt with it was they had pre-modern medicine uh, in two branches. One of these was scholarly medicine passed down in manuscripts from classical physicians like Hippocrates or Galen, uh, and from around the 12th century forward from Arabic treatises as well. And the other branch was folk medicine. Now, the physicians did have a certain degree of legitimate expertise when it came to anatomy and the treatment of mechanical injuries like dislocations, broken bones, battlefield wounds. Still primitive and frequently misguided by modern medical standards, um, but they actually did have some understanding of how the body is put together and how its parts interact. Uh, But when it comes to treating infectious disease or chronic pain... Uh, the learned doctors are basically prescribing the same herbal remedies and even preserving the same kind of useful charms and various forms of sympathetic magic, which are the principal modalities of the folk traditions. Certainly, then as now, some herbal treatments were based on what amounts to essentially empirical knowledge. You know, eating this plant has a laxative effect, or this one numbs or cools tissue, that sort of thing. Uh, But you're also just as likely to see herbal prescriptions whose rationale has nothing to do with any physical properties of the substance, but are entirely based on symbolic associations. Causality is very easily supplanted by analogy. So it's here that medicine, both in its elite and popular forms, remains thoroughly mixed up with magic, uh, especially for common ailments. If you lose a hand or fracture your skull, a medieval surgeon might actually be able to employ treatments that will save your life, provided you survive the inevitable post-surgical infection. But if you have back pain or arthritis or a urinary tract infection, the physician, if you are of high enough status to have access to one, would probably be mixing up pretty much the same poultice or broth and recommending basically the same litany of prayers that your mother-in-law or maybe the parish priest might prescribe to you. So why not embrace magic fully and seek out a miracle cure from a local saint shrine? Our stereotypical image of a miracle cure is of someone in extreme distress, uh, someone whom medicine, be it medieval or modern, cannot help. 
And sure, these are the cures especially likely to be recorded and shared in hagiography because they're the most impressive. They provide the best PR. But people were turning to the saints for help with all sorts of problems. Um, I say were, but of course people still do in some traditions. Try googling prayer against acne and just check out the range of results you get. Uh, And likewise, even when aspirin is readily available, and even when it's not um, prohibited by a more radical religious code against modern medicine, uh, some people are still just as likely to attempt to pray away a headache uh, as to pop a pill. Far, far fewer people now than 800 or 1,000 years ago, um, but still enough that you probably pass several of them in the street every day um, if you don't happen to be one yourself. So people turn to the divine not just for cures for leprosy or paralysis or blindness or grotesque swellings of the body, as we've seen here, um, but for what we might think of as over-the-counter treatments, too. Anyway, today I thought we'd look at a set of three cures for toothache attained at the shrine of William of Norwich and recorded in The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich by the monk Thomas of Monmouth. Uh, That's the same text from which I took our selection for episode one of Medieval Death Trip, so you can hear uh, quite a bit more about it there. But for those of you just now joining us, William of Norwich is a rather troublesome figure, uh, as he's one of the medieval prototypes of a child saint allegedly ritually murdered by Jews. Uh, So his legend, as recounted by Thomas, is just filled with anti-Semitic propaganda. Um... As with our first selection, today's tales don't really feature this anti-Semitism, but I don't want us to forget about it either. Now, this is actually going to be a loosely connected two-part episode. Um, We won't be looking at any more toothaches uh, next time, but we are going to continue with some very strange episodes from the posthumous miracles of William and the peculiarly possessive relationship our author Thomas has with his favorite saint. To that end, uh, today's text opens with a paragraph about a conflict between Thomas and the prior of Norwich, which leads into the first toothache, um, but otherwise won't seem to have much to do with anything else this week. Uh, However, this incident will come back in our next episode, so uh, file that conflict between Thomas and the prior away for future reference. Once again, I'll be reading from the 1896 translation of The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich by Jessup and James. So then, in the year of our Lord, 1150, when, as has been shown, the sacred body of the martyr had been removed into the chapter house on Wednesday after Palm Sunday, that is, on the 13th April, on the following Sunday, being that in which the joy of the Lord's resurrection is commemorated, I, Thomas, by the advice of some of my companions, to show reverence on so great a day for the worshipful martyr, covered his sepulchre with a carpet, and set up at his head a great wax taper lighted which I had provided for this purpose. 
But when Prior Elias heard of it, he was much offended, and gave orders that what had been set up there presumptuously and audaciously should be rudely taken away, and not be set up again. At this, the larger part of the convent was greatly scandalized and disturbed, and was the more displeased because it was an evidence of hostility. But, as some say, this was done by the advice of others, and from the urgings of envy, rather than of the prior's own motive. Yet, what I rather think is that the prudent discretion of so wise a man desired by this kind of treatment to correct and restrain my presumptuous temerity. But on that very same day, on which that audacious malice presumed to cast a slight upon the martyr, the divine mercy began to glorify him, and he was proved worthy of much veneration by a sign of God, whereby he adjudged him unworthy of the spiteful ill-will. For on Easter Day, a certain clerk of William the Sheriff, Galfridus by name, tortured by a very dreadful toothache, came to the sepulchre of the blessed martyr, a feeling of devotion drawing and leading him there. Prompted by his faith which taught him, he took a morsel of the cement of the sepulchre and touched his teeth, rubbing them with it, and immediately the pain was stilled as if he had nothing the matter with him, and he went away from the sepulchre whole. About the same time, Edmund the Younger, a monk of Norwich, was troubled with so terrible a toothache that the excessive swelling of the gums gave clear proof of his suffering. This man, remembering the clerk aforesaid, betook himself to the same place of refuge to try a remedy for his pain, as those seeking to be cured by the merits of the blessed martyr. But what in true faith he besought, that he was deemed worthy to obtain without delay. For when he touched the stone of the sepulchre with his suffering face, straightway the pain was allayed, and he felt all the swelling disappear. Um, now I'm going to skip ahead to an incident from a couple of decades later, um, and which is actually the very final episode uh, recorded in The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich. Although in the kingdom of the city above there are many separate mansions for the citizens, yet upon the faces of all alike there shines a like glory in the vision of their king, and those who, though various, are conjoined in one glory and happiness, are likewise bound together by one bond of charity. Hence I do not marvel that some, whom I believe to be associated in merits, should sometimes share in miracles, nay, take different parts in one and the same miracle, even though they be not equals in merit. Now, in the year of the Incarnation, 1172, one Galfridus, living at Canterbury, was afflicted with a severe toothache, and on the advice of his friends had the three teeth in his left jaw, which pained him the most, extracted. He thought little of the matter, and went to a supper with evil results. For, seeing on the table a dish of excellent white peas, and a fat goose with garlic, he was tempted by gluttony, and partook of them all to satiety, and also drank new ale. But this meal, so ill-suited to his case, was followed by a severe attack of pain and swelling. This increased until his whole head swelled so much that he presented the appearance not of a man, but of some portentous and horrid monster. His skin was stretched like a bladder so that those who saw him wondered that it did not break. The prominence of the nose was reduced to flatness. The eyes were sunken and dimmed, the mouth closed by the swelling of the lips, and the power of breathing obstructed, so that his friends inserted a reed into his mouth to enable him to breathe, lest he should be suffocated by the choking of the passages. What more? 
As his anguish continued, he was taken by his friends to the already glorious tomb of the glorious martyr and Archbishop Thomas. Here he spent the night, and with such groanings as he could utter, besought relief from his pain. At dawn he slept a little, and saw in a dream that most merciful martyr and Archbishop Thomas standing by him, who said, Galfred, what seekest thou here? Lord, said he, that thou wouldst have pity on me, and recover me of my sickness. The saint answered, Thy healing is not here, but lest thou be deprived of all profit from coming to me, I will give thee counsel. Rise, then, and return home. Make a candle in the name of St. William, the martyr of Norwich. Put it about all thy head, and thou shalt receive speedy relief. When thou art healed, hasten to Norwich, and offer that candle to thy liberator. At this the sick man awoke, rose, returned home, and hastened to accomplish the matters enjoined upon him. Wonderful event, and truly amazing. He put the candle all about his head in the name of St. William, and at the point on the left side of the throat where the end of it came, the skin cracked and burst as if pricked with an awl, and a great deal of discharge came out. The swelling subsided with extraordinary quickness. The pain departed, and the sick man recovered. Thus cured, he would not put off the prescribed pilgrimage, but went to the tomb of the blessed Thomas, prayed, received a letter of license, and started. When he had gone some way from Canterbury, and had passed through the town called Ospring at about the first hour, as he was journeying alone, he prayed the Lord to vouchsafe to give him good companionship for his pilgrimage. He was proceeding, and praying yet more earnestly, when suddenly two men of reverend aspect and dignified habit joined him. One was clad in raiment whiter than snow, the other wore the badges of kingly dignity. As they approached, the one in white said, Hail, brother, whither goest thou? Galfred answered, Welcome, brethren, I am going to Norwich. Let us go together, said the other. We too are journeying in that direction. They went on, Galfred being in the midst, and, as he told me afterwards, so pleasantly beguiled was he by the sweetness of their converse that he felt no fatigue from the journey, nor perceived how they crossed the river Thames. Finally, on that same day near sunset, having accomplished this wonderful journey on foot, they came to the stone which marks the third mile from Bury St. Edmunds. Here they halted, and the man in white said to Galfred, Knowest thou, brother, where thou art? He answered, I do not. Lo, said the other, the tower which thou seest is the tower of St. Edmund's church. Go in peace, therefore, and the Lord be with thee. And inasmuch as thou didst this morning pray for good companionship, so it hath been done as thou didst request. For know thou that I am Thomas, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and that this other is blessed Edmund, the king and martyr. But the blessed martyr William we have sent before us to Norwich, and there thou shalt find him. And with these words both of them vanished in a moment from the eyes of Galfred. Returning to himself, the more he thought upon the matter, the more he was perplexed to know how he had come to that place so quickly, and as he calculated the pace in his mind, he marveled that he felt no exertion. Naturally, as exertion had not been felt, no weariness followed. At the same time, while he remembered the sweetness of their converse, he grieved that so holy a company had left him. So, thanking God and the holy martyrs, he made haste to go to Bury, and entering the church, worshipped the tomb of the martyr, and went to his inn. In the morning he arose, feeling some little result of yesterday's haste, but quickly accomplished the rest of the way on foot, and speedily reached Norwich. 
he came to the sepulchre of the holy martyr William, offered the candle of his vow and threepence, and gave thanks to God and the aforesaid holy martyrs, to blessed Thomas, and to blessed Edmund for the comfort of their gracious companionship, and to St. William for the boon of restored health. To me, moreover, when I inquired the cause of his coming, he told the whole story, showed the marks of the swelling and of the spot where the skin had broken, and returned whole to his native country. Subsequently, I, Thomas, went to Canterbury, and saw him whole and well, and from the testimony of many monks and laymen ascertained the entire truth of the matters I had seen and heard from himself, and since the speed of the journey I have described seemed marvelous and almost beyond human powers, I took particular pains to investigate the facts of the case. Hence, I have inserted into this work the details which I had gathered from various sources upon this head. A number of persons at Canterbury have testified that he set out from thence on pilgrimage on the 18th of the Calends of February, that is, 15th of January, while I hold it to be certain that he was seen at Norwich at the sepulchre of St. William on the 17th of the Calends of February, the 16th of January. Or, to put it more plainly, he started from Canterbury on one day and arrived at Norwich on the next. So, let's deal with the last bit of the last episode, the miraculous journey, and then we'll get back to the toothaches. First, to clarify the nature of the miracle, uh, the distance from Canterbury to Norwich is about 160 miles overland. Speed of travel in the 12th century depended on a lot of variables, and estimates range from 30 to 60 miles a day being possible, depending on the size of the party traveling and the urgency of the journey. The long and short of it is that Galfred's journey probably should have been a three to five day affair, so accomplishing it in one day is pretty much supernatural. The only observation I'll add is that this kind of anecdote of impossible time compression um, and the related phenomenon of psychological lost time continues to this day in stories of UFO abduction, and you can trace some interesting through lines from medieval accounts of saintly miracles to fairy encounters, then to spirit encounters in the 19th century, uh, up to UFO mythology in the 20th. UFO enthusiasts like to point to stories of fairies and little people as likely medieval representations of encounters with extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional beings. Um, and I have a couple of those kinds of accounts slotted in for future episodes of this podcast. But when you do see the same motifs plugged into hagiography like this, uh, that's where the alien explanation no longer fits as neatly. But that's a thread I think I'll tuck away to pick up in a later episode. Now, to those toothaches. The toothache holds a special place in the ranks of private suffering. Uh, today, I think the only real dread a toothache conjures is the um, fundamental fear of the dentist drill, which, given the effectiveness of oral anesthetics these days, is almost entirely a kind of aesthetic, uh, neurotic fear, a fear of a sound more than anything. Um, and then I'm sure there's a sideline, perhaps, in the, uh, the dream fear of losing a tooth, uh, which 
should also be a rather attenuated concern in our age of crowns and bridge work and implants, um, at least for those who can afford them. But imagine not being able to call up the dentist, where your only options are hoping that the pain will go away, which, if it's an abscess, it very well might, or having the painful tooth extracted without the benefit of Novocaine or even stainless steel tools, and if the pain is due to cavities or decay exposing the nerve, extraction is close to the only option uh, you would have, though there were some medieval methods for filling cavities. I called toothache a form of private suffering, and uh, that's because it's an intimate kind of pain. It's in your head, and it often doesn't have any obvious outward sign. Uh, though I suppose sometimes your entire head swells up like a balloon, if Galfred's story is accurate. I remember first really being forced to consider the torment of having an untreatable toothache when I read uh, Arthur Kessler's novel Darkness at Noon as an undergrad, in which the protagonist, imprisoned during the Stalinist purges, develops an abscessed tooth, which comes to cause him so much pain that he's practically incapacitated. Uh, and this is someone deprived of treatment because of incarceration, uh, but it made me think about everyone who suffered this kind of pain because treatment didn't really exist. In other words, the vast majority of everyone who's had a toothache for most of the run of human history. I guess this was something of a revelation to me because until then I thought of toothaches uh, almost as a kind of comedy ailment. It's a cartoon character pain, you know, with a big white bandage looped around the face and jaw like you might see on Jacob Marley's ghost. It had always seemed, at worst, a kind of nuisance pain uh, to me. So it was eye-opening to suddenly think of it as a kind of inescapable horror instead. But I guess it's not entirely fair to say treatment didn't exist, um, because here's... One example, uh, let's look at the Anglo-Saxon leech book. Uh, leech, in this case, referring to a healer rather than the blood-sucking invertebrate. And, as a side note, those two words are probably, evidence suggests, etymologically distinct, though the legend that the one comes from the other is certainly popular. Anyway, the leech book is the name for a unique manuscript of medical treatments in Old English, uh, probably copied out in the mid-10th century. But despite a two-century gap between this Anglo-Saxon text and our uh, 12th century hagiography, I think we can feel pretty confident that these kinds of remedies hadn't evolved much in that time. So here's what the leech book recommends for a few assorted causes of tooth pain. As you listen to these, note the repetition and sort of minor variation. It almost feels like flipping through index cards of collected treatment. That's sort of how the manuscript is structured. This is from uh, Oswald Cockaine's 1865 translation uh, of Book 1, Chapter 6. And one other note, uh, this translation refers to tooth wark, uh, wark is an Old English word meaning pain or ache, so tooth wark equals tooth ache. Um, wark survives in some English dialects, uh, but it is largely obsolete, though its cognates are alive and well in Scandinavian languages. Okay, enough. 
Here are some treatments for toothache from the Anglo-Saxon leech book. 3. For tooth wark, if a worm eat the tooth, take an old holly leaf and one of the lower umbels of the heartwort and the upward part of sage. Boil two doles in water, pour into a bowl and yawn over it, then the worm shall fall into the bowl. If a worm eat the teeth, take holly rind over a year old and the root of carline thistle, boil in so hot water, hold in the mouth as hot as thou hottest may. For tooth worms, take acorn meal and henbane seed and wax, of all equally much, mingle these together, work into a wax candle, and burn it, let it reek into the mouth, put a black cloth under, then the worms will fall on it. 5. For toothwark, boil in wine or in vinegar the netherward part of a raven's foot, sup as thou hottest may. For toothwark, bray together to dust, rind of nut tree and thorn rind. Dry then in a pan, cut the teeth on the outside, that is the gums, shed on frequently. 7. For the upper toothache, take leaves of withwind, ring them on the nose. For the nether toothache, slit with the tenaculum till they bleed. 8. Again, take elm's rind, burn to ashes, mingle the ashes with water and strain, hold the water long in the mouth. Again, take yarrow, chew it much. And just for fun, and because it's the medieval language I'm most practiced and least embarrassed to read aloud, uh, here's the Old English text for cure number five, uh, the one for upper and nether toothache. Uh, plus, it's kind of a fun one because I think it has you know, a somewhat unusually high quotient of moderately recognizable words in it that have carried over into modern English. All right. With them uveran toothache, yenim with a windan lef, auring on the nozu. With them nitheran toothache, slit mid the forthon of that here bleden. Ah, I love that. Now, a couple of other notes on these cures. The one for toothworm that uses burned up henbane uh, tracks back to an ancient Roman cure, if, if not a much earlier, uh, earlier one. According to a great 2004 article um, from the British Dental Journal, an uh, uh, article that's available online, Dental Treatment in Medieval England by T. Anderson, the way this cure probably worked, bearing in mind that toothworms don't really exist, uh, well, I suppose outside of certain extraordinary circumstances, um, but worms are a common scapegoat for any and all localized pain in ancient and medieval Europe. Anyway, this cure worked, in quotes, uh, because the burnt seeds of henbane that would come out of the candle uh, or out of the mouthwash, depending on how it was used, um, the seeds might resemble little dead worms. So the cure actually creates out of itself the apparent evidence of it having drawn out some foreign nastiness. Uh, it's the same method by which ear candling has been shown to operate, that the candle itself makes the wax that is then claimed to have been sucked out of the ear canal. Uh, and notice how the remedy specifically calls for placing a black cloth under the mouth so that you'd really be able to see the so-called worms falling out. This is a cure with some showmanship built into it, 
uh, you know, a trait that's common to quackery of all kinds, even sincere uh, and well-meaning quackery. And you might be lucky if your treatment is merely ineffective hocus-pocus. There is plenty of chance that the cure could hurt you worse. Uh, take the story of Galfred, for example. His toothache actually develops after he's had a seemingly successful extraction of three other teeth. In an appendix to his article, Anderson actually discusses the tale of Galfred through the lens of modern dental knowledge. He concludes, quote, The detailed description appears to represent a genuine case of post-operative infection. The pain and swelling came on some time after the extraction of his teeth. The fact that it occurred while he was eating a large supper was, in the hagiographic literature, attributed to his gluttony. The infection, severe attack of pain and swelling, was associated with massive abscess formation. Whole head swelled so much his skin stretched like a bladder. The pain was relieved by the bursting of the abscess. Burst as if pricked with an awl, and a great deal of discharge came out. Possibly related to the heating and blistering of the skin. The bust abscessed, subsided with extraordinary quickness, the pain departed. Quite possibly, Galfred did visit the Shrine of St. Thomas, and receiving no remission of pain, he decided to return home to Norwich and pray to St. William. After he had made the decision to journey to Norwich, the abscess burst, and of course this was attributed to saintly intervention. End quote. Now, Anderson has a minor error in his account there, uh, just about where Galfred lived. He lived in Canterbury, not Norwich. But otherwise, it's a nice reading through the medieval hagiographer's prose to uh, a more likely medical reality lying beneath it. He does have a little bit of a stretch, I think, in attributing the placement of the candle around the head as a cause of blistering that might burst the abscess. Uh, I, for one, am perfectly content to chalk the timing up to pure coincidence, um, or maybe just uh, due to the extended movement of the head and neck. Uh, I, I think modern analysts do sometimes succumb to a temptation to over-explain colorful details in accounts like this. Ironically, sometimes modern empirical interpreters seem to see more meaning and causality in little details uh, than even a medieval monk who would normally be prepared to see God's providence operating in them all. I actually think the most curious aspect of Galfred's story is the apparent impotence of the nationally renowned St. Thomas Becket, the murdered Archbishop of Canterbury, who is unable to provide a cure and has to direct Galfred to William of Norwich. But we shouldn't be surprised, I suppose, that our monk, Thomas of Monmouth, might tell a story which suggests that his St. William is actually even more capable and worthy of pilgrimages than the great martyr of Canterbury Cathedral. And I think we'll leave it there. Uh, but first, there's some unresolved business from last episode. Our riddle. The riddle was... I tell again life's wondrous story old, not born, nor did my mother me enfold, and then, though born, no eye could me behold. This is a riddle from late antiquity, one of the 100 riddles of Symphosius, uh, as translated into English verse by Elizabeth Hickman Dubois. Um, and the answer to this enigma of the creature born and yet not born is pulus in ovo, or... A chicken in the egg. And now our new riddle. 
This one takes the form of a metaphor that requires decoding, one of my favorite kinds of riddles. The riddle is, two beams on which the chickens sit, while a cock stands talking among them. One more time. Two beams on which the chickens sit, while a cock stands talking among them. There's been some interesting activity on Twitter, and you can find us there, at MDT Podcast. Despite thinking of myself as a technophile and early adopter and even occasionally an actual IT support person for departments I've worked for, I'm still struggling a little bit to grok Twitter. Uh, I use my personal Twitter account almost exclusively for consumption. Uh, I just read posts from people I follow. Um, And even that, just barely, since it seems like there's so many posts streaming constantly. Uh, So I'm still trying to readjust uh, to the idea of actually being a Twitter content provider. Um, So I'm going to try to be better with replies and engagement and generally being uh, at least a little bit more of an active rather than a passive Twitter user uh, through the MDT podcast account. Um, But I want to thank those of you who have been sharing things with at MDT podcast. You are certainly giving me good reasons to strive to be more engaged. In addition to Twitter, you can visit our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, to get the sources for each episode uh, or to leave comments. And you can also email me with feedback, questions, or corrections at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. I'll be back in two weeks with more of Thomas of Monmouth's adventures as the special curator of the cult of St. William, uh, as well as a demonic pig. I hope you'll join me then. Happy upcoming Valentine's Day, take care, and thanks for listening.